Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service and get to know a little bit more about your story. Um, we are very close to finishing up our study in the Gospel of Luke, and I've mentioned before, Brian and I both have short attention spans, so it's been pretty amazing for us, at least, to have gone through this for over a year now. Uh, I hope, for those of you that have been around for a while, that it's been uh, encouraging for you as well, and I think this is our second-to-last uh, passage in Luke, so we're, we're getting near the end, and Luke is uh, tying things off with a lot, of, a lot of themes, a lot of strands that he's pulling together that we're going to pick through this morning, and uh, hopefully together we'll leave this place encouraged. Why don't I pray for us as we start? Jesus says, we will hear in a moment the road of mission can be a lonely place. It can be a discouraging place. And there are times where even those of us that have been a part of your people for all of our lives, where we feel like we can't see you, where we feel like you have been missing for a while, and we don't know how to get back. And yet you have promised, you have purposed, you have covenanted to reveal yourself to us in your word and in your table. And I ask that this morning that that would be true, that your spirit would be in this place, speaking words of comfort to our hearts, that as we come and feed on you, that we would be given grace and mercy, and peace, and trust that you are with us, and you will never forsake us. We ask this in your name. Amen. I found him. I found the guy who will change all of this. The man had so breathlessly burst into the room that that was really just more of a shed that was home for him and his wife, that in his excitement, he didn't even bother to shut the door and keep out the cold. His wife was immediately thrown into a rather stressful confusion and started to pepper him with questions, but he was too busy packing up his few belongings, his other change of clothes, a jug for water, and a few crusts of bread. But we can't just leave my parents. The occupation has practically killed them already, she was saying, as her voice finally slipped back into his ears, and he spun around quickly to face her, and he said, Mary, Mary, you're not hearing me. The occupation is going to be over soon, and it's going to be like everything that we've read about. When this guy takes over, I'll be able to get the farm back. It's going to be great. Your parents can come and live with us there. You don't need to worry. And suddenly, Mary's confusion began to fall away, and it was replaced with one question that she already knew the answer to. How are you home right now? Why aren't you at work? She asked her husband. The man swallowed slowly, and it felt as if one of those dry crusts of bread he had just packed up was lodged in his throat, etching itself there. I quit, he said quietly. But, he followed quickly, unable to sit under her stare of defeat, it's because I'm going to help on the campaign. I'm going to help get the message out there, and once we get the message out there, I'm telling you, this guy is a shoe-in. I won't have to work down at the docks anymore. We'll have the farm, fresh fruit. You'll get to drink milk again. And then he paused. You should come with me, he said, knowing that he'd be walking back out that door alone. 
He could hear her crying softly as he walked away, and his stomach was in knots as his hope battled fear. If this worked out, she would never be happier. She would finally get the life that she deserved, but if it failed, she might never forgive him. Well, the first few weeks on the campaign trail were difficult. After all, it's tough to get a clear, compelling message across when there's a foreign occupying army in the neighborhood. But when they would come back through his village, the man would stop by to visit his wife, Mary, and tell her of the small victories that were happening along the way. And eventually, she came to one of the rallies and became so enamored that she too decided to join the campaign team, and the man was overjoyed. So they continued to travel about on all the stumps, and as they headed toward the capital, making stops in all the villages along the way, the, the campaign staff was starting to get kind of this nervous energy. They knew that they needed the backing and approval of the city council. Without it, none of this work would pay off. It would all be for naught. And so with all of their nervous energy, they would hold meetings, trying to craft a compelling message, trying to figure out who was in charge of the campaign and how, most especially, to keep the candidate on point. Because he seemed to be going out of his, out of his way to antagonize the council, calling them out for their failed policies. But as the campaign started to wrap up and they entered the city, the people... The populace seemed extremely ready to accept this new leader. It seemed like they already had fallen in love with him just by what they'd heard. And the campaign staff was exhausted, but they were happy that things seemed to be heading in the right direction. Victory was right around the corner. They could taste the party already. But once they were in the city, everything was a blur. The council had had enough of this brash young candidate's words that they issued an arrest for him based on some trumped-up criminal charge. And within a few hours, victory vanished completely. This candidate that the man and his wife had given everything to follow spiraled downward faster than any political scandal before or since. There was even a rumor that one of the campaign staff had, had sold the council some information that they used in their takedown of him. But either way, it was clear that the city council that had so long hated this occupying army actually conspired with them to get this guy arrested. And before the campaign staffers knew it, their leader was being tortured and executed for inciting rebellion. And Mary and her husband felt as if they were lost at sea, completely numb from the cold water, yet somehow still able to feel the waves crashing about them, constricting them, pushing them down and pulling out from underneath them. He and Mary hung around the city for another day or two, wandering around in a daze before they finally decided to tuck their tails between their legs and head home in defeat. Now that same day, the two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And then the man named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. 
They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and they were saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, Brian did a great job of showing us how in Luke's capturing of the resurrection of Jesus, we are left with a very stark choice. We can either accept Jesus on his own terms or reject him outright. And if you were here last week, then you heard some really compelling historical reasons to trust the resurrection story of the early church. But it's as if Luke anticipates that we might have one final point to make, which is we weren't there. It would have been so easy to believe if we had been there, if we had seen him die and come back to life. In fact, Luke is writing to an early group of Christians, an early church, who though they were very much closer to the events that took place in the resurrection than we are, they were still far enough removed that they had much the same outlook. This was years ago. It was miles away. How are we supposed to trust? And how can you honestly have a religious movement based on interacting with and experiencing a person when the first generation within the movement is the only one that actually gets to experience him? Well, Luke's answer for us, if we'll hear it, is that our experience of Jesus is no different from that first generation of Christians, and it is twofold. We experience Jesus in the Word, and we experience Jesus at the table. We'll begin by looking at how Luke sets up the scene, and then we'll look at Word and table in turn. Luke tells us that Cleopas and his unnamed companion, who I uh, fictionalized a little bit, but who tradition tells us was probably Cleopas' wife Mary, were walking away from Jerusalem on the same day of resurrection, the resurrection that they didn't yet know had taken place, and they were engaged. And the words that Luke uses to describe their conversation suggest that it was a very emotional conversation about everything that they had just witnessed. And they were dejected and downcast because they had followed the wrong guy. They had put their trust in a failure who got executed outside the camp. But Luke, ever the skillful writer, sets up some blistering irony by cluing us, the readers, in on the fact that this stranger that approaches the dejected couple is Jesus himself. Luke tells us they were kept from recognizing him, and this is what uh, theologians refer to as a divine passive the, way, the, the, the verbs that Luke uses is a, is a passive verb, and it suggests that God is the one who is actively kind of blinding these people to seeing who Jesus is. And while that is true, 
I think it's easy for us to get that idea backwards. We might think that, that God is putting blinders on these people for this particular moment, these particular people right now. But when we see, uh, when Cleopas sums up his ideas about who Jesus is, who he hoped Jesus would have been, we see that it's not so much that a few individuals here and there are blind to Jesus. It's that the cross is such a deep, apparent failure. It is such foolishness, as Paul calls it, that it leaves everyone blind to the truth about it until Jesus chooses to give them sight. And so incognito Jesus saunters up, and like any friendly stranger traveling at the time, he says, what are you guys talking about? You can almost hear the stress in Cleopas' voice as he berates this foolish stranger. Are you insane? You've got to be the only person in the whole city who doesn't know the things that have just happened. What rich irony that Cleopas acts as if Jesus is the one who can't see clearly. But Jesus just calmly sets the bait. Oh, what things? Cleopas responds by telling Jesus about himself. With one of the earliest, most primitive Christologies, Cleopas says that Jesus the Nazarene was a prophet, powerful both in word and deed before God and the people. And Luke isn't portraying Cleopas as wrong. In fact, he's, he's showing us that Cleopas has the facts pretty much squared. Jesus was a prophet, and we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but the rulers of our people had him murdered. This is the third day since his death, and some of our women have seemed a bit hysterical because we can't find his body, and some angels are trying to tell us that he's alive. Some of our friends try to confirm this, but they didn't see Jesus. What Luke is showing us is that Cleopas has all of his facts correct, and yet he doesn't understand their meaning. He still doesn't understand their context. A few weeks back, I read an interesting article by uh, a biographer named Tanner Colby. Mr. Colby had been um, approached by uh, John Belushi's wife to come and write the, uh, a new biography of his life. And it was interesting because the definitive Belushi biography had been written 20 years previous by Bob Woodward. And Woodward's work, when it came out, was very controversial. Here was this uh, journalist who took painstaking effort to get the facts completely right, and yet when you would talk to any of the people that knew Belushi and they would actually rehash these scenes that Woodward wrote down, they would say, well, that's not really how it happened. In fact, it was actually quite a bit different than that. And so here Tanner Colby goes around and interviews all of the same people that Bob Woodward had interviewed 20 years earlier, and he asks them about many of these experiences recorded in Woodward's account of Belushi's troubled life. And what began to emerge was just that. Woodward got the life, the facts, accurate. Belushi was an addict. He was extremely talented, but extremely troubled. Colby says in his reporting, he'd hear a story from, from people that had actually been there in these moments with Belushi that sounded completely contrarian to what Woodward had written down. So he'd rush back to Woodward's book and check the facts, and he'd realize that technically he'd got it correct. And Colby says he'd put down the mechanics of the story more or less as they'd happened, but he'd so mangled the meaning and the context that his version had nothing to do with what I concluded had actually transpired. Cleopas and many of Jesus' other disciples, at least still at this point, are still misunderstanding the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew to expect a Messiah, 
a redeemer of Israel. And they had picked up on some of the various scriptural references of what this redeemer would look like, but they had completely missed the point. They only saw what they wanted to see. And they were waiting for a Messiah who would come in glory and power and destroy their enemies. So Jesus responds to their dejection with a twinkle in his eye. You dummies, you're not seeing it. Have you not understood all the things that the prophets have spoken? Did you not know that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things before entering his glory? When I lived in Phoenix, I got to know a family that had taken their large historic farm that was still a working farm and turned it into sort of an agricultural Disneyland. And they were wealthy and connected enough to be friends with people like Larry King, who I always call Larry King Live because that seems like that's his full name. They were friends with Larry King. They were friends with Oprah. And every year they would do this celebrity corn maze. And so though other farms do corn mazes, these guys took it one step further. And so one year they, they cut Larry King's face into the corn maze. The next year was Oprah. And the year that I was there, it was uh, Luis Gonzalez, the, the outfielder for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, when you're in a corn maze, this is all totally lost on you. They probably spent who knows how much money cutting this to be in this shape of this guy's face to look like a baseball card. But when you're there and you're in the middle of the maze, all that you see is stalks of corn and a narrow, muddy pathway right in front of you. But the family, wealthy as they were, happened to have a helicopter there. And there was, of course, you know, news people all around. And I was lucky enough to get a ride in the helicopter. And as we took off and rose up from the ground, I was able to see Gonzo's face. I had a completely different perspective on this cornfield. This is the sort of ride that Jesus gives to Cleopas and his companion. And it's the sort of view that we need to understand as well. The study of Scripture that we do corporately and individually has got to help us get up and over the cornstalks of individual passages and doctrines and allow us to see the flow of the Word. Allow us to see the picture of Jesus that is etched there for us. And Luke tells us that starting with Moses and going straight through all the prophets, Jesus explains to them what was said about himself in their Scriptures. Now, the Hebrew scripture is divided into three groups, Torah, prophets, and writings. And the Torah is often referred to as the book of Moses. And so when Jesus or one of the gospel account writers tells us that that Jesus goes and talks about Moses and the prophets, what they're saying is shorthand for the entire Hebrew Bible. So Jesus goes through the entire Hebrew Bible and shows this couple himself throughout the entire thing. He is the creator God the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the prophet greater than Moses, the prophet, priest, and king in the line of David who will inherit David's throne forever. He is the Son of Man who receives glory from the Ancient of Days. He is pictured in the Exodus from Egypt. He is the bronze snake lifted up in the wilderness. He is the Lamb sacrificed for Passover, the tabernacle, God's dwelling place on earth. He is the scapegoat slaughtered outside the camp. He is wisdom from the book of Proverbs, the crushed man in the Psalms, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the man about which Cyrus, the pagan king, prophesied he would go up to Jerusalem and his God would be with him. He is the one upon whom God's spirit will rest, the one who will pour out God's spirit on his people, the one who proclaims freedom to captives, gives sight to the blind, declares the year of the Lord's favor, the one who will build a road from Egypt to Assyria to Jerusalem, bringing in all people, even the enemies of his people, to come and worship him. But even more than that, Jesus himself, the word of God, 
is the fulfillment of the very rhythm of Scripture, the storyline of God's work in the world, which is always suffering before glory. And that is what his disciples failed to see. They failed to see that Abraham and Sarah suffered in barrenness for years before they were given the child of promise. They failed to remember that Israel suffered in captivity in Egypt for years before God came and delivered them. They failed to see that David suffered under the insane rule of Saul for years before God brought him into the promised throne that he said he would give him. They failed to see that their forefathers had been in exile for generations, suffering for years before God entered in again. And the rhythm of God's work in the world is suffering before glory. It's very interesting that Luke doesn't give us any sort of atonement theory or theology at all. Here we have Jesus walking along, talking with his followers, going through the entire Hebrew scripture with them, and the only reason that we get for why the Messiah had to suffer and die, the only mechanics that were given are simply that the scripture said that it should be so. That's the only reason that Luke gives us. There's no big theological reason, no discussion of the mechanics of how he takes on our guilt or we take on his righteousness. It's just scripture said that this was necessary and so it was necessary. That's the picture that Scripture has been painting all along. And of course, there are moments and stories within that bigger pattern that show us more of the mechanics of God's work in the world, of God's work in atonement. But if we can take a step back from time to time, it's like a photo mosaic. If we're up close, we just see these tiny little pictures, these tiny little stories And they seem sort of randomly placed, but if we're able to pull back and see the entire thing, we will see the picture of the Messiah. We will see the story of God entering into the world and pulling all of the sin, all of the suffering and death of the entire world down into the black hole of his own death before emerging on the other side of resurrection. We will see that the curse is being reversed in all ways. We'll get to more on that in a moment. As the day fades, the couple urges this stranger to stay with them. But Jesus pretends to be itching to get on his way, but they insist that he stay. After all, they have never heard this familiar story told in such an unfamiliar way. So Jesus agrees, and they sit down to the supper table. And Luke tells us, Jesus takes the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread and passed it to them. And they could swear they almost heard what Peter had told them had happened in that upper room before he went to death. They almost heard him say, this is my body broken for you. And their eyes are opened. They see their Messiah. It's him, Mary. It's him, Cleopas. It's Jesus. And then, like a candle being extinguished, he's gone. And Luke here has has done just some unbelievably skillful writing and has alluded to two stories in in this one telling right here. And, And the one is at the beginning of his own gospel. He tells us of a couple, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. And they had gone up to Jerusalem with Jesus as a child, and then they lost him. And for three days, they're wandering the road away from Jerusalem, dejected and downcast and fearful and filled with dismay. And when they finally catch up to him, when they finally see him, Where have you been? What have you been doing? And what does he tell them? Don't you know I had to be about my father's business? 
Heracleopas and Mary, walking away from Jerusalem for three days, missing Jesus, downcast, filled with fear and dejected. And when Jesus meets them, he says, don't you guys know? I had to be about my father's business. This was always the plan. It was necessary that the Messiah suffer these things before entering his glory. Not only that, but but Luke also, as he alludes to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we'll partake in in a moment, as that being the moment that this couple's eyes are opened, he uses the exact same phrasing that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to describe the eyes of Adam and Eve being opened when they tasted of the fruit when they rejected God's plan and they brought a curse upon the entire world. And here we see Jesus opens the eyes of his people through the sacrament of his table to show us that he is reversing that curse worldwide. What we see if we took the time to go back and look at the Genesis account is that Adam and Eve had been placed in the garden that God had created. God's mission in this world and creation from the very beginning was to have a people to dwell with him in his place and to fellowship with them there, and yet they rejected that. And so what happened? It wasn't just that their relationship with him was torn. Their relationship with each other was torn. Their relationship with his world was torn. All of the elements of nature had been ripped apart. Shalom was completely lacking. And so the question of the rest of the entire scripture is how will God repair the shalom in his creation? How will he bring about wholeness and peace to the entire universe? And the answer that we're given, if we can actually see that mosaic, is the death of Jesus. And from that day to this, we have not come up with a better way to explain the mission and work of Jesus than in broken bread and spilt wine. Margot Fontaine, who's hailed as one of the best classical ballet dancers in the 20th century, gave this performance one night and and was asked backstage by one of the viewers to explain the meaning of the dance that she had just danced. And Margot probably looked pretty perplexed, maybe a little put off, and she said, I explained it when I danced it. Jesus explained his love in his death on the cross, and he explains what his death means for us in his table. He reveals himself to us in his death and in the sacrament of the Eucharistic bread and wine that we celebrate every week. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But what does it compel us to do? It compels us to get back up from the table and head back out on the road just like Cleopas and company. They head back to Jerusalem that night, a very dangerous thing to do on this road in this culture. And they're saying to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us as the word was being unveiled before us? And as they get back to the city, they are met with the news that he's here. It's him. He appeared to Simon. And then the two travelers of the way tell the fledgling, nearly birthed church the same story we tell each other today. We saw him. When he broke the bread, we saw him. Now, if you're here this morning still on the outside of faith, we want you to meet the resurrected Jesus. That's why we do something as strange as having someone like Brian or I get up and talk at you guys while you sit there silently for like half an hour. It's because we believe that as the word of God is preached, Jesus shows up and reveals himself to hearts. We want you to meet with him in faith. We want you to see his death in your place, and we want you to join him and his people in baptism. If you have not taken that step, I invite you to come and speak with me, talk with Brian, talk with one of our leaders here. We would love for you to join in on what we have happening here, to join in with the truly resurrected, alive Messiah 
But if you're already a part of Jesus' church, then as we, as we say often, we're kind of caught between two things. It's almost cliche now, but, but we're Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We, we are people that know and believe the resurrection has happened. The curse is being lifted. There is a new renewal of everything that God has done taking place in our midst, and yet it still feels as though he's not here at times. And so we need to be prepared because the mission, the road of mission through this world can be discouraging. Jesus can get lost from our sight, and pain or darkness or death may overtake us, and we may cry out, where are you? We cannot see you. And with faith, we can believe that even when we don't see him, he's still there. And what we do as a community, what we call one another to do as a community, especially when one of us feels like we can't go on this road any longer without seeing him, is we call each other back to this place. We call each other back to come and see him in the word and to come and meet him at his table. He will reveal himself and feed our hearts with his mercy as we come to his table. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we prepare to come to your table, I ask that your spirit would be in this place in power, that this bread and this wine would be for us your body and your blood that we would not be caught up trying to explain what it means that you're present in these elements, that we would even for a moment put away our questions of, of how it works that your righteousness becomes ours and that we would just be content in the picture as we tear bread as your flesh was torn, as we spill wine as your blood was spilt. May we know your love for us. We ask it in your name. Amen.